This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, October 31st, 2016, episode 31, Concerning the Revenants of William of Newburgh. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts for two years running now. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. It's episode 31 on the 31st, which seems like an auspicious omen for celebrating the second anniversary of the start of this show. And while almost any episode could plausibly be considered Halloween appropriate, we're going into high spookiness today. We're going to hear some medieval English ghost stories, or more precisely, revenant stories. But is that more precise, really? This precision hinges on a distinction that we make now that wasn't exactly made by medieval people. So what is this precision? Well, in some circles, revenant is a term used uh, in contradistinction to ghost. So whereas a ghost is an incorporeal spirit of a dead person, which distinguishes it in turn from a demonic or angelic or elemental spirit, a revenant is a reanimated corpse. It's an undead creature with a physical body. So both zombies and vampires could be classed under the larger umbrella of revenants, though in practice, revenant is used more often as the catch-all label for forms of walking dead that don't quite fit the definition of vampire or zombie. This distinction is largely a modern invention, uh, at least in English. Literally, revenant, as borrowed from the French, which inherited it from Latin, just means one who has returned. And that broader sense is also in use, uh, sometimes with a sinister edge to it, just as we might describe unexpectedly running into an old acquaintance as encountering a ghost from our past. Um, And honestly, I don't know if the Leonardo DiCaprio movie, The Revenant, is deliberately invoking the undead meaning, since his character does basically crawl out from his own grave, or if it's meant to conjure the broader sense. I think maybe I resist the obvious undead reading uh, just because, as someone who grew up with the Dungeons & Dragons monster manual and countless books about monsters and the paranormal, uh, Revenant always seemed to have this very technical definition. It was almost Dungeon Master jargon, really. Uh, But of course, that was just my perception. Outside of gaming and folklorist typologies, Revenant has been used pretty much synonymously with ghost and as a term to describe someone who has returned unexpectedly after a long absence. And the simplest fact is that the undead creatures of folklore are defined by the transgression of natural and rational categories, Uh, so trying to stick solid definitions to them is really an exercise in futility. And truth be told, I have a much longer spiel about the sort of role-playing gamification of monsters and magic that has spread across our pop culture in the last 50 years or so, um, with all of its rather fixed rules and definitions and distinctions, you know, what counts as a true zombie and what doesn't count, or how do you kill a werewolf according to quote-unquote true folklore instead of Hollywood inventions, uh, so that we're refereeing our monsters in ways that would be utterly baffling to an ancient or medieval person. But I'm saving the rest of that rant for a future occasion, uh, partly because today's revenants do, uh, as it happens, rather consistently follow some rules. 
so I'll save my other lecture for when we have some more mutable sorts of medieval monsters to talk about. So, revenants, reanimated corpses. The revenants that we're going to see today come from a series of particularly famous stories inserted by William of Newburgh into his Historia Rerum Anglicarum, or History of English Affairs, a chronicle covering the years 1066 to 1198. Or at least these stories are famous in the scholarship of medieval ghost lore, and they sometimes show up in popular ghost story collections too, when the editor wants to include items from a lot of different historical periods. I won't say much about William now, uh, we'll revisit his history in the future, um, but I'll just note that he was a canon of Newborough Priory in Yorkshire, that he wrote his history in the 1190s, and he probably died in his early 60s in the year that the history abruptly ends in, uh, 1198, or sometime shortly thereafter. While William, unsurprisingly, doesn't provide any hard dates for his revenant stories, they mostly seem to take place in living memory, with the last two allegedly happening quite recently, perhaps even being directly tied to a great English plague that he recounts uh, for the year 1196. So we can assume that these stories are at least presented as having happened in the 1180s or 1190s. It's worth noting that the mid-1190s were a bit of a chaotic time in England. Having been captured and held for ransom on his way back from the Third Crusade, Richard the Lionheart finally gets back to England in this period, which leads to a few sieges and violence against the forces of his brother John, whom every Robin Hood fan knows as the villain who occupied the throne in Richard's absence. The king also had to fight to reclaim some of his lands in Normandy, and there's a massive plague and famine, and it just generally must have felt like the world was on the brink of collapse. So maybe it isn't surprising that this period produces a parcel of horror stories like these, in which an oppressive and disruptive evil is made concrete and manifest, and is ultimately dispatched. My two guides today for refreshing my memory of medieval revenant lore are a pair of great articles, uh, one from 1996 by Nancy Cacciola, called Wraiths, Revenants, and Ritual in Medieval Culture, which appeared in Past and Present, and one from 2003 by Jacqueline Simpson entitled Repentant Soul or Walking Corpse, Debatable Apparitions in Medieval England, uh, and that appeared in the journal Folklore. One thing both of these scholars address is the difficulty in reconstructing popular belief about the undead in the Middle Ages when virtually all of it has been filtered through ecclesiastical sources. And there are some strong tensions between what Orthodox Christian doctrine allowed in terms of supernatural activity and what the popular folklore reported. One of the chief points of contention is that once you're dead, you're supposed to be in God's hands. You don't come back to life unless it's a divine miracle. So in the face of thriving revenant tales, a theologically sound answer is constructed, which is that the bodies are not angry and evil dead people coming back from the grave, but rather they are simply bodies that a demon has crawled into and taken control of, like putting on a costume or working a puppet. Theologically, this is sound, but in practice, it ignores how many of the revenants we see in medieval texts very much appear to retain the personalities and motivations they had in life and continue to pester the living people they had personal relationships with. So, you know, maybe it's just a demon doing a mighty fine method-acting masquerade, uh, but the end result is that it's very much as though that specific person has come back from the dead as a supernatural monster. 
We're going to see William wrestling with precisely this issue, and his answer is to pay lip service to the official dogmatic explanation, but for the most part he just shrugs and doesn't let that get in the way of telling a good story. And these are good stories. Even presented as historical accounts, it's very hard not to notice the motifs and particular genre tropes that repeat from tale to tale. English revenants are probably heavily indebted to Scandinavian folklore, and they tend to appear in northern English sources where there had been a history of Scandinavian settlement and influence. One feature of the Icelandic sagas is the appearance of draugr, which is best translated as revenants, you know, characters in both the legendary and historical sagas who come back as monstrous animated corpses of enormous strength and who terrorize farmsteads and districts, uh, usually up until someone manages to behead them. They still have that fundamental physicality that separates them from ghosts. You know, these are bruisers with bodies, and they're destroyed through the destruction of that body in one way or another. Oh, and speaking of the gamification of mythology, uh, probably most people now who know the word Draugr have picked it up not from the sagas, but from playing the Elder Scrolls games, you know, especially Skyrim. How you get a revenant in these stories is not all that different from traditional lore about malevolent ghosts. So they're usually a wicked person who dies in a sudden, violent, or impure way. They die with unfinished business or without ritual protections, and thus they're driven to come back, or, depending on your theological slant, their bodies are vulnerable to the machinations of evil spirits, uh, maybe even the same spirits who are tempting their souls to sinfulness in life. In other Revenant tales, there are some interesting variations in this pattern, but William's stories stick to the classic tropes pretty closely. And with that, let's get to them. I'll be reading from Joseph Stevenson's 1856 translation of William's Historia. Chapter 22 Of the Prodigy of a Dead Man Who Wandered About After Burial In these days, a wonderful event befell in the county of Buckingham, which I, in the first instance, partially heard from certain friends, and was afterwards more fully informed of by Stephen, the venerable archdeacon of that province. A certain man died, and according to custom, by the honorable exertion of his wife and kindred, was laid in the tomb on the eve of the Lord's ascension. On the following night, however, having entered the bed where his wife was reposing, he not only terrified her on awaking, but nearly crushed her by the insupportable weight of his body. The next night also he afflicted the astonished woman in the same manner, who, frightened at the danger as the struggle of the third night drew near, took care to remain awake herself and surround herself with watchful companions. Still he came, but, being repulsed by the shouts of the watchers, and seeing that he was prevented from doing mischief, he departed. Thus driven off from his wife, he harassed in a similar manner his own brothers, who were dwelling in the same street, 
But they, following the cautious example of the woman, passed the nights in wakefulness with their companions, ready to meet and repel the expected danger. He appeared notwithstanding, as if with the hope of surprising them should they be overcome with drowsiness. But, being repelled by the carefulness and valor of the watchers, he rioted among the animals, both indoors and out of doors, as their wildness and unwanted movements testified. Having thus become a serious nuisance to his friends and neighbors alike, he imposed upon all the same necessity for nocturnal watchfulness. And in that very street a general watch was kept in every house, each being fearful of his approach unawares. After having for some time rioted in this manner during the nighttime alone, he began to wander abroad in daylight, formidable indeed to all, but visible only to a few. For oftentimes, on his encountering a number of persons, he would appear to one or two only, though at the same time his presence was not concealed from the rest. At length the inhabitants, alarmed beyond measure, thought it advisable to seek the counsel of the church, and they detailed the whole affair with tearful lamentation to the above-mentioned archdeacon at a meeting of the clergy over which he was solemnly presiding. Whereupon he immediately intimated in writing the whole circumstances of the case to the venerable Bishop of Lincoln, who was then resident in London, whose opinion and judgment on so unwanted a manner he was very properly of the opinion should be waited for. But the bishop, being amazed at his account, held a searching investigation with his companions, and there were some who said that such things had often befallen in England, and cited frequent examples to show that the tranquility could not be restored to the people until the body of this most wretched man were dug up and burnt. This proceeding, however, appeared indecent and improper in the last degree to the reverend bishop, who shortly after addressed a letter of absolution written in his own hand to the archdeacon in order that it might be demonstrated by inspection in what state the body of that man really was, and he commanded his tomb to be opened, and the letter having been laid upon his breast to be closed again. So, the sepulchre having been opened, the corpse was found as it had been placed there, and the charter of absolution having been deposited upon its breast, and the tomb once more closed, he was thenceforth never more seen to wander, nor permitted to inflict annoyance or terror upon anyone. Chapter 23 of A Similar Occurrence at Berwick. In the northern parts of England also, we know that another event, not unlike this, and equally wonderful, happened about the same time. At the mouth of the River Tweed, and in the jurisdiction of the King of Scotland, there stands a noble city which is called Berwick. In this town, a certain man, very wealthy, but, as it afterwards appeared, a great rogue, having been buried, after his death sallied forth out of his grave by night, by the contrivance, it is believed, of Satan, and was borne hither and thither, pursued by a pack of dogs with loud barkings, thus striking great terror into the neighbors, and returning to his tomb before daylight. After this had continued for several days, and no one dared to be found out of doors after dusk, for each dreaded an encounter with this deadly monster, the higher and middle classes of the people held a necessary investigation into what was requisite to be done, the more simple among them fearing, in the event of negligence, to be soundly beaten by this prodigy of the grave. But the wiser, shrewdly concluding that were a remedy further delayed, the atmosphere, infected and corrupted by the constant whirlings through it of the pestiferous corpse, would engender disease and death to a great extent the necessity of providing against which was shown by frequent examples in similar cases. 
they therefore procured ten young men renowned for boldness, who were to dig up the horrible carcass, and, having cut it limb from limb, reduce it into food and fuel for the flames. When this was done, the commotion ceased. Moreover, it is stated that the monster, while it was being borne about, as it is said by Satan, had told certain persons whom it had by chance encountered that as long as it remained unburnt, the people should have no peace. Being burnt, tranquility appeared to be restored to them, but a pestilence, which arose in consequence, carried off the greater portion of them. For never did this plague so furiously rage elsewhere, though it was at that time general throughout all the borders of England, as shall be more fully explained in its proper place. Chapter 24 Of Certain Prodigies It would not be easy to believe that the corpses of the dead should, I know not by what agency, sally forth from their graves, and should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living, and again return to the tomb, which of its own accord spontaneously opened to receive them, did not frequent examples occurring in our own times suffice to establish this fact, to the truth of which there is abundant testimony. It would be strange if such things should have happened formerly, since we can find no evidence of them in the works of ancient authors, whose vast labor it was to commit to writing every occurrence worthy of memory. For if they never neglected to register even events of moderate interest, how could they have suppressed a fact at once so amazing and horrible, supposing it to have happened in their day? Moreover, were I to write down all the instances of this kind which I have ascertained to have befallen in our times, the undertaking would be beyond measure laborious and troublesome. So I will fain add two more only, and these of recent occurrence to those I have already narrated, and insert them in our history, as occasion offers, as a warning to posterity. A few years ago, the chaplain of a certain illustrious lady, casting off mortality, was consigned to the tomb in that noble monastery which is called Melrose. This man, having little respect for the sacred order to which he belonged, was excessively secular in his pursuits, and, what especially blackens his reputation as a minister of the Holy Sacrament, so addicted to the vanity of the chase as to be designated by many by the infamous title of Hund-Priest or Dog-Priest, and this occupation during his lifetime was either laughed at by men or considered in a worldly view. But after his death, as the event showed, the guiltiness of it was brought to light, for issuing from the grave at nighttime, he was prevented by the meritorious resistance of the abbey's holy inmates from injuring or terrifying anyone within the monastery itself, whereupon he wandered beyond the walls and hovered chiefly with loud groans and horrible murmurs round the bedchamber of his former mistress. She, after this had frequently occurred, becoming exceedingly terrified, revealed her fears or danger to one of the friars who visited her about the business of the monastery demanding with tears that prayers more earnest than usual should be poured out to the Lord in her behalf, as for one in agony, with whose anxiety the friar piously and justly sympathized, for she appeared deserving of the best endeavors on the part of the holy convent of that place by her frequent donations to it. And he promised a speedy remedy through the mercy of the Most High Provider for all. Thereupon returning to the monastery, he obtained the companionship of another friar, of equally determined spirit, and two powerful young men with whom he intended with constant vigilance to keep guard over the cemetery where that miserable priest lay buried. These four, therefore, 
furnished with arms and animated with courage, passed the night in that place, safe in the assistance which each afforded to the other. Midnight had now passed, and no monster appeared, upon which it came to pass that three of the party, leaving him only who had sought their company on the spot, departed into the nearest house, for the purpose, as they averred, of warming themselves, for the night was cold. As soon as this man was left alone in this place, the devil, imagining that he had found the right moment for breaking his courage, incontinently roused up his own chosen vessel, who appeared to have reposed longer than usual. Having beheld this from afar, the friar grew stiff with terror by reason of his being alone, but soon recovering his courage, and no place of refuge being at hand, he valiantly withstood the onset of the fiend, who came rushing upon him with a terrible noise, and he struck the axe which he wielded in his hand deep into his body. On receiving this wound, the monster groaned aloud, and, turning his back, fled with a rapidity not at all inferior to that with which he had advanced, while the admirable man urged his flying foe from behind and compelled him to seek his own tomb again, which, opening of its own accord and receiving its guest from the advance of the pursuer, immediately appeared to close again with the same facility. In the meantime, they, who, impatient with the coldness of the night, had retreated to the fire, ran up, though somewhat too late, and having heard what had happened, rendered needful assistance in digging up and removing from the midst of the tomb the accursed corpse at the earliest dawn. When they had divested it of the clay cast forth with it, they found the huge wound it had received, and a great quantity of gore which had flowed from it in the sepulchre. And so, having carried it away beyond the walls of the monastery and burnt it, they scattered the ashes to the winds. These things I have explained in a simple narration, as I myself heard them recounted by religious men. Another event also, not unlike this, but more pernicious in its effects, happened at the castle which is called Anantis, as I have heard from an aged monk who lived in honor and authority in those parts, and who related this event as having occurred in his own presence. A certain man of evil conduct, flying, through fear of his enemies or the law, out of the province of York to the lord of the before-named castle, took up his abode there, and having cast upon a service befitting his humor, labored hard to increase rather than correct his own evil propensities. He married a wife, to his own ruin, indeed, as it afterwards appeared, for, hearing certain rumors respecting her, he was vexed with the spirit of jealousy. Anxious to ascertain the truth of these reports, he pretended to be going on a journey from which he would not return for some days. But, coming back in the evening, he was privily introduced into his bedroom by a maidservant who was in on the secret and lay hidden on a beam overhanging his wife's chamber, that he might prove with his own eyes if anything were done to the dishonor of his marriage bed. Thereupon, beholding his wife in the act of fornication with a young man of the neighborhood, and in his indignation forgetful of his purpose, he fell and was dashed heavily to the ground near where they were lying. The adulterer himself leapt up and escaped, but the wife, cunningly dissembling the fact, busied herself in gently raising her fallen husband from the earth, as soon as he had partially recovered, he upbraided her with adultery and threatened punishment. But she answering, Explain yourself, my lord, said she. You are speaking unbecomingly, which must be imputed not to you, but to the sickness with which you are troubled. Being much shaken by the fall and his whole body stupefied, he was attacked with a disease, insomuch that the man whom I have mentioned as having related these facts to me, visiting him in the pious discharge of his duties, 
admonished him to make confession of his sins and receive the Christian Eucharist in proper form. But as he was occupied in thinking about what had happened to him and what his wife had said, he put off the wholesome advice until the morrow, that morrow which in this world he was fated never to behold. For the next night, destitute of Christian grace and prey to his well-earned misfortunes, he shared the deep slumber of death. A Christian burial, indeed, he received, though unworthy of it, but it did not much benefit him. For issuing by the handiwork of Satan from his grave at nighttime, and pursued by a pack of dogs with horrible barkings, he wandered through the courts and around the houses, while all men made fast their doors, and did not dare to go abroad on any errand whatever from the beginning of the night until sunrise, for fear of meeting and being beaten black and blue by this vagrant monster. But these precautions were of no avail, for the atmosphere, poisoned by the vagaries of this foul carcass, filled every house with disease and death by its pestiferous breath. Already did the town, which but a short time ago was populous, appear almost deserted, while those of its inhabitants who had escaped destruction migrated to other parts of the country, lest they too should die. The man from whose mouth I heard these things, sorrowing over this desolation of his parish, applied himself to summon a meeting of wise and religious men on that sacred day which is called Palm Sunday, in order that they might impart healthful counsel in so great a dilemma, and refresh the spirits of the miserable remnant of the people with consolation, however imperfect. Having delivered a discourse to the inhabitants, after the solemn ceremonies of the holy day had been properly performed, he invited his clerical guests, together with the other persons of honor who were present, to his table, while they were thus banqueting, two young men, brothers, who had lost their father by this plague, mutually encouraging one another, said, This monster has already destroyed our father, and will speedily destroy us also, unless we take steps to prevent it. Let us, therefore, do some bold action, which will at once ensure our own safety and revenge our father's death. There is no one to hinder us, for in the priest's house a feast is in progress and the whole town is as, as silent as if deserted. Let us dig up this baneful pest and burn it with fire. Thereupon, snatching up a spade of but indifferent sharpness of edge, and hastening to the cemetery, they began to dig. And whilst they were thinking that they would have to dig to a greater depth, they suddenly, before much of the earth had been removed, laid bare the corpse, swollen to an enormous corpulence with its countenance beyond measure turgid and suffused with blood, while the napkin in which it had been wrapped appeared nearly torn to pieces. The young men, however, spurred on by wrath, feared not, and inflicted a wound upon the senseless carcass, out of which incontinently flowed such a stream of blood that it might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. Then dragging it beyond the village, they speedily constructed a funeral pyre, and upon one of them saying that the pestilential body would not burn unless its heart were torn out, the other laid open its side by repeated blows of the blunted spade, and thrusting in his hand, dragged out the accursed heart. This being torn piecemeal, and the body now consigned to the flames, it was announced to the guests what was going on, who, running thither, enabled themselves to testify henceforth to the circumstances. When that infernal hellhound had thus been destroyed, the pestilence which was rife among the people ceased, as if the air, which had been corrupted by the contagious motions of this dreadful corpse, were already purified by the fire which had consumed it. 
These facts having been thus expounded, let us return to the regular thread of history. So there we have the famous revenants of William of Newburgh. One thing we might just note right away is that the first event in the regular thread of history that opens up the next chapter is an account of an astronomical prodigy, the appearance of two suns in the sky, which preceded, and therefore was later interpreted as presaging, renewed hostilities between England and France. Stevenson, our translator, points out in a footnote that the three chapters we just heard, and the next chapter with the double sun, were omitted from the first 16th century printed edition of this history. Uh, I would presume because they weren't seen as historically meritorious. Or maybe because of some Protestant objection to Catholic superstition. Uh, but either way, it's interesting to think that William of Newburgh is probably discussed more today because of these three chapters of his history, um, plus one other interesting marvel that he reports on that I'm saving for later. Um, but more about these than for the history in his Historia. But, as I mentioned at the start, it's hard to perceive much history in these tales. They are just such tales. They're so full of genre elements, it's hard to see them as anything else. You have the repeated image of the revenant tailed by howling dogs. You have the visitation to a former lover repeated over a series of nights. And the first of those visitations, to interject a quick observation, has all the classic features of a sleep paralysis experience, um, in this case with a male figure pressing down on the sleeping person instead of the more customary night hag or succubus. Uh, it stops being a plausible sleep paralysis nightmare once we're told that other people see this thing going into the room and they fight with it and so forth. But nonetheless, we're given one of those little tantalizing seeds of a plausible psychological experience underlying the accretion of more fantastical details. But back to the tropes. The other rather delightful story trope here, um, stumbling in unexpectedly from an entirely different genre, is the jealous husband hiding in the beams of his roof and then falling with serious injury and being left confused about what he's seen. If that sounds familiar, that's probably because you've run into elements of it in Chaucer's Miller's Tale and Merchant's Tale. It's a little adultery fablio plugged in here to kick off the start of a ghost story. It's like a folklore mashup. Much like with our last Halloween episode and all the werewolf lore I couldn't possibly get into with Bisclaveret, there's so much in these stories that we could spend hours teasing out, and we just don't have time. One big question that many readers raise is whether or not we should consider these to be some of the first vampires recorded in English literature. There are some obvious echoes of Eastern European vampire lore here, especially in the means by which these revenants are dispatched, and in the emphasis William puts in a couple of the tales on the blood which flows from the corpses when they're destroyed. You also have the association of the undead with the spread of disease and a kind of miasma. But the general consensus seems to be that we wouldn't deem these proper vampires, uh, mainly because there's no overt blood, or life force sucking, um, but they certainly show some underlying common mythological DNA at work. It's also interesting to see William looking to the great historians of Roman antiquity 
and noticing that they don't tell these kinds of stories, from which observation he deduces that they must be a rather new phenomenon, since everyone knows they happen, and surely no self-respecting historian would omit such amazing events from his records. Of course, ancient Rome did have its own ghost and revenant lore, and there are some classical sources that tell such tales, uh, but it's true that these things tend not to show up in Tacitus or Suetonius. Nonetheless, this suggests something about what kinds of classical literature uh, Yorkshire canon in the late 12th century had access to. Uh, and I'll conclude with one more observation, which is the probably unintentional commentary that's implied by the two tales which bookend this little collection. At the end of the first, we're actually denied the traditional destruction of the Revenant. Everyone says there's one way to get rid of it, dig it up and burn it. But the Bishop of Lincoln, possibly highlighting that folk beliefs did not necessarily permeate all levels of society in the same way, uh, he balks at this barbaric suggestion and instead sends a very urbane and typically ecclesiastical letter of absolution to be placed on the corpse. Monster slaying by means of paperwork, you know, a classic clerical move if ever there was one. And the amazing thing is that it works. William tells us, after this was done, the dead man wandered no more. But one maybe senses that this didn't quite provide the definitive closure that the people wanted. And what do we see in the final story? Again, a dead man is running amok. A churchman brings other clergymen to town, and they pontificate and sermonize for a while. And then, while they're all inside having a big meal, two townies take it upon themselves to deal with the problem and dig up the body and burn it to ashes, specifically while the clergy are distracted and can't interfere. No one's going to be sending to the bishop for some letter. We've got the pyre ready to go. And of course, once this dirty work is done, everyone, including the clergy, celebrate the deed. And I'm going to wrap up here so that we can all get on to celebrating Halloween by opening our doors to little walking monsters, hopefully with a minimum of dismemberment. Though I expect a few pumpkins aren't going to make it through the night all in one piece. But before we go, we have to unwrap our riddle and see if it be trick or treat. Our riddle was another one from Symphosius, and it went, By countless teeth is all my body lined, The forest's sons I touch with bite unkind, And yet in vain I eat, I throw it all behind. This one's actually kind of easy, I think, if you either have a quick recognition of what thing is lined all the way along with teeth, or if you work out what the four suns are that are being eaten up. Those suns are trees, and what thing is lined with teeth and chews through trees while spewing sawdust behind it? Well, a saw, of course, and that's the answer. Our new business, then, is a new medieval mystery word. Our word today is glossima. Glossima. What language is that from? What does it mean? Well, to get the definition of this obscure word, you'll have to join us next episode in mid-November sometime. Until then, a big thanks to those of you who have been listening since our first few episodes for these two years, and a hearty welcome to those who have come on board more recently. I'm really thrilled with the reception the show's gotten. And I especially want to thank those of you who have taken the time to post nice reviews up on iTunes, uh, which, as probably every other podcast has told you countless times before, 
is a really powerful thing to do to help raise the profile of a podcast in the iTunes store. And it means a lot to me personally uh, as someone doing this really just because it's fun. And I want to share that fun with other people. All right, I, I better stop before I start getting mushy. You can find us on Twitter at MDT Podcast or on the web more generally at MedievalDeathTrip.com where you can find more information and references for this and every episode of the show for all of our past two years. And you're welcome to send email to me at patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com I'd also like uh, once again to thank my brother, Chris Lane, who produced our theme music and is the composer of several of the background music tracks that I've been using throughout these two years. Uh, you can tell which ones those are because they're the best ones that sound like real music. Well, happy Halloween to you all, and thanks, as always, for listening. <laughs>